It's Monday, August 23rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Mr. Jason Moser. Good to see you. Good to see you. We have a risk factor in the war on cash, lest anyone think we do nothing but cheerlead <laughs> one side in the war on cash. We're, rah, we're gonna, rah, re. <laughs> we're going to talk about the other side today, but we're going to start with... Visa. <laughs> We're going to start with retail. Um, last week, we got Target's earnings report and some color from management on how back-to-school shopping is going. Today, we found out what they have in store for the end-of-the-year holidays. Target is planning to triple the number of Disney shops within Target locations. This is the store-within-a-store concept that they started in 2019 with Disney, with, I think, about 25 locations. They increased it a few at a time, but now they are aiming for more than 160 by the end of the year. And that is that is close to 10% of Target's locations. It is. And I, I mean, I think this is a very shrewd move. I like it. Um, to me, we're seeing this, this sort of transformation of Target from just a a department store or, you know, a discount retail store to almost becoming like the new version of what a mall should be for this for this next generation, right? I mean, the, the malls that you and I grew up with, Chris. I mean, it, it, time time will tell exactly how how that scene shakes out. But it, it almost seems like those malls are becoming like little towns, right? I mean, a lot of these malls, and I think we've seen this in language from Simon Property Group and whatnot. I mean, a lot of these malls are talking about being coming about becoming like destination centers and places where you either go for entertainment or even live, perhaps. I mean, they're building apartment complexes and whatnot. So, if these new malls or these malls are becoming like the new little towns, it seems like Target's uh, in stores like that are becoming sort of the new version of a mall. I mean, we have Ulta uh, with with a relationship with Target. We have Apple with a relationship with Target. And, and Disney, uh, seeing this expansion of this relationship, it, it only makes sense. And, and I think the timing is right. Uh, because you're right, they're coming off of a tremendous quarter. They've got their inventory levels back up. They're well prepared for the back half of this year. Uh, and, and to throw more Disney stuff into the mix, I mean, th- this to me is is just an absolute no-brainer. And you couple that with the fact that Target now has better than 100 million uh, Target Circle Rewards members I mean, there are going to be a lot of different things they can do with this, and and I, I think I mean obviously we we know the 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 attraction to Disney and all of the different characters and properties that Disney has. That's that's not going to change. In fact, I mean, as time goes on, it should only become a stronger uh, competitive uh, point towards to, for Disney and, and ultimately for Target. So to me, uh, this makes a whole heck of a lot of sense, and uh, and, and I think the timing is right. This ought to frame them up for a pretty good holiday season, I would think. I, I like how you're framing this as Target is basically like a new, like, like a smaller version of a mall. It's a curated mall because you, you yeah. can also throw in there the fact that a few years back they sold their pharmacy business to CVS mm-hmm. and basically said to CVS, all right, we, you come in here and do this. And... I don't know about the Target closest to you, but the Target closest to me, um, right when you walk in, there's a Starbucks cafe. Yeah. So it's like I get my coffee, get caffeinated, um, and go around. Are you like me, curious to see what happens to toy prices this holiday season? Because between this story 
some of the color we got out of Hasbro and Mattel out of their most recent earnings reports, uh, it, it, it seems like toys are going to be more expensive this year. I, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, if you remember a few weeks back, we were talking about Hasbro's earnings report, um, and, and they had noted in their call they they were planning for uh, for prices to go up this this uh, this holiday season, and a lot of that really is because of freight and shipping costs. I think they said that they they actually quantified it, and that freight and shipping costs this time uh, this year are, are about four times as great as they were a year ago, and that's a big bump in just a short period of time. And so they'll be passing along price increases for the back half of the year. I, that's the ideal time to do it. Because this this really should, in theory, be a pretty robust holiday season, given uh, where we're coming from. Um, and so, to me, it only makes sense uh, to, to be able to pass those prices along. And so, I suspect we will see that. Um, you know, exactly how far they decide to take it is is anyone's real guess. But I, I do think that you're seeing. You're seeing with with Disney and Target. I mean, it's it's not just Disney and Target partnering together, right? It's it's also worth remembering that uh, Target is teaming up with FAO Shorts. I mean, since we're on the topic of toys, Target is team teaming up with FAO Shorts again this year. They did it last year, but this is boiling down ultimately to an exclusive. I believe they said a 70-piece toy collection with FAO Schwartz. Uh, it's going to have items from Barbie and, and Paw Patrol, which is clearly a big a big seller right now with, with the new movie and whatnot. Um, they're going to have a pop-up shop inside of, of FAO Schwartz's flagship store in New York City. So, it to me, it's very fascinating to see how all of these different retail concepts are coming together in, in, in figuring out ways to work together. It's, you know, I was talking, I'm going to name drop here, Chris. I'm big time, right? So, last week, you may have heard <laughs> at an interview with the CEO on Wednesday's Industry Focus, <laughs> Latch, Latch CEO, Luke Schoenfelder. It was just, it was fun conversation. If you missed it, make sure to catch last Wednesday's Industry Focus. It really was a good interview. But, but Luke and I were talking about this this the sort of competitive landscape today, and it's not just retail. I mean, you see it in tech as well. Um, in in Latch is focused on on connecting buildings and the Internet of Things and stuff and whatnot. Um, and so I, I was talking to him about other other quote unquote competitors in the space like Google or Apple, uh, other companies that sell those types of of devices and those types of the, the software that manages them. And and he he mentioned a term that I think we've mentioned before through the years on the show, the coopetition. Right, it's not it's not necessarily com- competition in its purest forms, but it's it's comp- it's competitors coming together in in competing, but in a cooperative way. Right, it's they're figuring out a way for everyone to benefit to to basically let all those boats rise with the tide, and, and it's just it's it's neat to see that. I mean, I know. You know, we talk all the time about competition and may may the best man or, or woman win whatnot. But but it, it is also worth remembering that this is a time where we're seeing a lot of success stories. And as as we say with investing, in most cases, it's not always really it's, it's rarely, if ever, a zero sum game. I mean, you can pick a number of winners out there. Um, and so it's just neat in Target's case that you know, looking at Target, you're also seeing these other retail concepts that are going to be rising along with that tide. Whether it's Disney, whether it's Apple, whether it's FAO Schwartz, whoever it may be. I mean, you're seeing these 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 concepts coming together to figure out ways for all uh, all of them to benefit. And to me, that's uh, that's just exciting to see, particularly at this time when we're going into a holiday season that that should be pretty robust. 
Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. We got a note from Chadwick in Florida who writes, what do you all make of Starboard Values open letter to box shareholders, the back and forth responses, and the possible shenanigans at Box? So a little bit of background here. This is Box.com, the cloud storage company. Starboard Value, the activist firm that has about an 8% stake in Box. Uh, Starboard Value nominated four directors uh, for the 10-person board that Box has. Um, they made those nominations earlier this year, saying that Box hasn't capitalized on the work-from-home trend. Um, they're falling behind other cloud competitors. And I don't have any stake in this whatsoever, but I will point out that, at least from a stock perspective, I see where Starboard value is coming from, because this, <laughs> this stock is basically where it was when Box went public in January of 2015. Yeah, yeah, you're right, and and I don't have a stake in this either. Um, so looking at this, just just sort of from an outsider's perspective, um, you 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 mentioned the the stake that Starboard has in Box. It's worth noting they have a much larger stake than all of the insiders put together. Um, from what it looks like, so I mean that that's something worth just keeping in mind. I mean this is a business in Box that went public. I think it was January of 2015. Yep. Um, and the the CEO and co-founder, I believe, Aaron Levy, is still at the helm there. It, you know, these, these can be really tricky because sometimes you feel like, wow, the gall of a fund manager thinking that they know this business better than the people running it. I mean, come on. And probably eight times out of ten, that's that's probably the safe assumption. I mean, fund managers at the end of the day are really just trying to make some money. Um, on the other hand, I mean, it, it may be that they do have some some insight through past experiences um, or, or ways, uh, suggestions that, that might help the business improve. In, in the case of Box, I mean, it remains to be seen. Uh, but, but to your point, I mean, while, while I, I would argue that oftentimes the stock price isn't a good indicator of success in the near term, particularly with businesses like these that are still unprofitable and still relatively unproven. This is also a company that's been public since, like I said, January of 2015. I mean, I, I think in this case, we're, we're well past the point where the stock price you know, might not necessarily be a good, in, a good indicator. I think in this case, the stock price is a good indicator. And when you dig a little bit deeper, uh, you certainly see the numbers bear that out. I mean, it's, it's a company where growth is slowing down. And if you just look at the compounded annual growth rate of, of revenue over the last five years is 19.3%, three years, it's 14.3%, and just one year, 11.9%. And this is still a relatively small business. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it, it looks like Starboard, there's some questions there in regard to capital allocation on the box side, and, and furthermore, uh, capital raises that the company performed that they may not have needed to perform, or at least perform in the way that they did. It's really difficult to say what ultimately comes of all of this. I think in this case, though, for me, and I've always been a little bit skeptical of Box just based on the general market and the numbers that the company has always lobbed up. It is a obviously a big market opportunity in cloud storage and distribution, but it's also a very competitive one. And to me, yeah, it feels like maybe feels like maybe maybe Box might want to, you know, put the ego aside for a minute and, and maybe maybe listen to what Starboard has to say because right now what they're doing just clearly isn't working. 
This morning, uh, Institutional Shareholder Services, which is a proxy advisory firm, came out and they backed Box. They they yeah. recommended voting the shareholders vote for Box's um, slate of directors, and that's you know in the short term that uh, I'm not saying that seals the deal for Box, but that certainly um, points to uh, probably a better outcome in the short term. But this whole thing. If nothing else, I feel like starboard value has just put box management on notice and that the clock is ticking because a year from now, if this stock is still in the mid-20s, um, I don't know that things are going to go management's way. Yeah. And I mean, you have to ask yourself, like, why is starboard doing this? I mean, I don't think starboard is doing this because they truly want to see box just grow into this 25-year success story. I think Starboard is doing this because they have an end game, right? They want to make some money from this investment. They've been in this for a little while. They're not making any money from it, but they're trying to figure out a way to create some value. I mean, that's the job. Um, so, so there are there are two different perspectives at play here. I mean, it, it, it's it's one thing for management at Box to say that they are taking a long view and building this company for long term success, but but you do have to show the signs for that. And I mean, with a business that's been around this long in the public markets, I mean, 2015, it's been a little while. I mean, like I said, still unprofitable. I mean, it's barely cash flow positive. You back out stock-based compensation. I mean, it's really not a very impressive picture there either on the cash flow side. It feels like this business should be further along than it is right now. But, but I mean, clearly there are two different agendas here. I don't begrudge either. Um, if you know, if for me personally, I, I tend to default. I want to let the company kind of go do its own thing and. You know, hey, listen, Starboard. If you're not making any money, if you don't like this, maybe maybe the thesis has changed. You know what we say when that happens? Sell. Go go put your money somewhere else. I mean, there's nothing stop stopping from doing that. And I would imagine if uh, if if this continues the way it's going, that we probably will see Starboard just cut bait and, and move on to greener pastures. One of the big sporting events this weekend: WWE SummerSlam. Oh, yeah. In Las Vegas, tens of thousands of people attending at Allegiant Stadium, which, as some may know, is a cashless stadium. And that's great until the system goes down, which is what happened during SummerSlam. <laughs> um, TSIS, which is the third-party payment system, um, basically the, the bones of what makes that cashless stadium run, experienced a nationwide outage and so no sales could happen no uh, alcohol sales were not happening at the SummerSlam. god knows how many thousands hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars were lost in revenue um what do you think when you look at this story because like like setting aside what that must have been like for the people attending uh, I look at this and I think, uh, you know, I, I still believe in the war on cash, but maybe it makes sense to still have cash available as a backup. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, you better keep in the back of your mind. You may have to pull a Cosmo Kramer and start sneaking those cafe lattes into the events, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you can't rely on being able to buy it there. Um, I mean, I, I read this, and you know, a buddy of mine, Hayden Willis down in Georgia, sent me this uh, a link as well. We were talking about it. We've we've talked about this a long time. He's a lawyer, and we've always we've talked about the idea of of whether you could even 
you know, going cashless, there's some legal ramifications, right? I mean, there's language on actual cash that says this is legal tender. So the argument could be made that if you're a merchant, you need to read, you need to accept it. Um, now, I don't know how that'll all shake out, but I will say, I mean, I personally think that no matter what line of work you're in, to me, I think you always need to accept cash. Now, some people may think, whoa, wait a minute, what are you, you're saying? You got to take cash. I mean, listen, I love the war on cash, and we're investing in that, right? But but if you're a business, I mean, you need to give yourself the biggest market opportunity you possibly can. And if if you're working some type of retail concept or an event, you know, where people are are coming in and buying uh, food and beverage, I mean, you just need to accept cash. You need to give yourself the most opportunity. And so, if you cut off cash, even even when everything is working just fine, to me, you're limiting yourself. You're not giving yourself the biggest market opportunity. But to me, this also really this demonstrates number one, it demonstrates the sort of spaghetti junction that the payments industry is, because this isn't just thesis. I mean, this was thesis, which was which is Total Systems, and it was that was acquired by Global Payments back in 2019. So really, this is a global payments issue. But then it's also a Shift Four issue because Shift Four is a partner with Tesis and Global Payments in helping all of this stuff work. And, and you start seeing how this payments industry, it's very difficult to fully connect all the dots and understand everyone's role there. So, it is tricky. I feel like over time, this is a space that is going to have to consolidate. It's going to shake out some of the smaller, uh, weaker competitors, uh, just just because because uh, that, that that's simply going to have to happen. Um, but but it can be very difficult to fully understand who's doing what. And and at the end of the day, if you want to go cashless and just require on using technology, well, you're going to need to to develop some type of redundancy here, kind of like in the cloud business, right? Some sort of backup system so that when the inevitable happens, because it's not like this might happen again, it's going to happen again. It's just going to be a matter of how you handle it. And I mean, I can remember back in the day growing up. When I, you know, I'd be working a job, whether it was in the golf business or whatever, if a system went down and someone wanted to pay with a credit card, well, you know what we did? We just took the card and we wrote down the number, the name, and the expiration <laughs> right, date, right. and then we rang it through the system later when the systems were back up. Now, maybe you're taking a chance there that some cards will be declined, but that's better than just refusing sales and giving everything away. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like this probably could have been handled a little bit differently. A lot of lessons to learn there. But the bottom line, I, I just, I will always believe this. I think you just have to accept cash. Even if no one uses it, you just got to have that option because there's going to be a point in time where it's going to come in handy. And, and unless we go to just a fully cashless economy, which I don't see happening, then you got to make sure you just, you just give yourself the biggest market to work with. Gather round, children. We'll tell you about when we used to use pen and paper to write <laughs> credit card numbers down. Do they even teach handwriting in school anymore? I don't think so. I don't think so. Or at least, I don't know. I'm, My daughters I'm, have really good penmanship, but I think that's just because they practice it on their, on their own. All of, their, yeah. all of their work is done. I mean, they're junior and sophomore in high school now. They, everything is, everything is uh, on their laptop. So, yeah, it's, it's not quite the same as it was growing up. The grade school years are in the rearview mirror, thankfully. So, um, <laughs> yeah, not sure. Jason Moser, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.